Good morning to you. It's good to see you this morning. It's always a pleasure to open God's Word with you. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 11. We're going to be scanning through chapters 11 and 12 this morning quickly and pulling out some big picture views. Um, How many of you, before we begin this morning, uh, actually we're beginning now, how many of you by show of hands are familiar with the Maps app on your phone or Google Maps or something of that nature? Good, yeah, show of hands, good, good, I see those hands, I see that. We've got a staff member in here that can get all those decisions that were just made, so let's, if we can report those, that'd be fantastic, good. So many of you are familiar with this. If, if you are familiar with it, you, you know the functions. If you're not, I'll explain it a little bit to you. You can use your fingers, and if you kind of put them together and expand your fingers out, you actually zoom in on the map. You start to see details. You start to see place names pop up. You start to see little restaurants pop up that are close. You, know, you, you start to see little side road names pop up. And those details can be fun. In fact, if you uh, are on satellite view, you can look at the trampoline and the yellow slide in my backyard. Those details can be fun and helpful and necessary, but when we zoom in like that, we also lose the big picture. And so what you can do on this little Maps app, I just enjoy saying that, is actually take your fingers and pinch them together, and what you do is you begin to zoom out and see the bigger picture. You start to see things that can be also, that also can be helpful, something like uh, the traffic that would make you late for church or something of that nature, so you can't blame that anymore because we all know the technology's out there to alleviate it. You're welcome. might be when we zoom out, we start to see what we would call the 30,000-foot view of, of the city roadways or something of that nature. And today in Nehemiah 11 and 12, God has inspired a list of names and places similar to chapter 7 that we've already been through. And certainly we could zoom in and we could look at these names individually and we could see who they were and their significance However, another way to look at this passage is to zoom out and look at it from a bigger picture of the storyline of Scripture. This is only one way to look at these chapters, certainly, but we may miss some details, certainly, but I think that after looking at these chapters closely for a few weeks now, there's much to be gained by seeing these chapters as the culmination of the Lord's covenant faithfulness in the lives of his people. Dr. Cook has regularly reminded us that this book is not about leadership only. This book is not about a man, Nehemiah, only. It's not about visioneering only. This is primarily a book about God. And as we see a detailed list today of of leaders and priests and Levites in Israel, around the mid-400s B.C., what we really see is the faithfulness of God to his people. God is fulfilling promises that he made to Abram when he called him out of Ur in Mesopotamia. Now in Nehemiah 11 and 12, these promises are only partially fulfilled. We're going to see that this morning, but I think that's exactly the point. The overarching picture that we get here is that God is fulfilling his covenant promises in exactly the right way at exactly the right time in history as a direct pointer to the time when he will fulfill all his promises in full in Christ Jesus. The benefit of this 30,000 foot view for us today is that we're not the only ones in history who have lived in a time when God has made promises that are not yet fulfilled. Think about our time now. God has promised to bring us to a heavenly kingdom, but we're not there yet. God has promised to make us like Jesus through spirit-wrought sanctification, 
but we're not there yet. We still continue to struggle and fight with sin in our lives. God's promised to us everlasting joy in his presence, but we're not there yet. We continue even today to weep with those who weep and to comfort the afflicted. We live in a time of redemptive history when God has promised things to us that have not yet come to pass. And the same was true for Israel. They were back in their land, certainly. They had rebuilt the wall, certainly. They had rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel, yes. Many of the promises of God are being fulfilled right before their eyes as we read these stories. And yet Hebrews 11.39 tells us that the Old Testament saints did not receive what was promised. It's interesting. So we're not the only ones who have lived in this in-between aspect of God's economy. The 30,000 foot view today of Nehemiah 11 and 12, I think, shows us that God is fulfilling his promises in the right way, at the right time, for the eternal joy of his people. What we have this morning in these chapters is a very clear picture of God's steadfast love to his people. We see God has provided offspring for Abraham. We're going to see that in a moment. We also see that God has provided land for his people, not just any land, but the land of Canaan that he had promised to Abraham specifically. And we see a God today who delights in the worship of his people and gives them great joy to do so. First thing that we need to do this morning in order to understand this background is to to check out the background of the Abrahamic covenant. We've got to have a a paradigm in which to read Nehemiah 11 and 12 from this 30,000 foot view. If you remember the story in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to travel to the land of Canaan. As part of the covenant with Abram, God promises him three things. He promises him offspring, number one. Number two, he promises blessing. And number three, he promises land. If you go back to those chapters, you'll see those listed out very clearly. God promised to make Abram a great nation and to give him and his offspring the land, which, in fact, Nehemiah is now resettling in our chapters. In Genesis 15 of the Abrahamic narrative, God focuses his covenant of offspring to Abram by telling him that one of his own sons will be his heir. Even in his old age, there will be biological offspring given to Abraham. Genesis 17 is typically thought to wrap up the Abrahamic covenant formally. And there we see that these promises go beyond the singular great nation that God intended to make for Abram. And in fact, these blessings extend to a multitude of nations, exemplified in Abram's name change to Abraham. In Genesis 17, God promised to extend Abram's blessings both numerically and temporally. Numerically, God says, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. There are more nations than just one that will come from you. Temporarily, God extends his promise to Abraham, saying that it will be an everlasting covenant. It will be a covenant everlasting between God and Abraham and his offspring throughout their generations. And in fact, he says that the land promise will be an everlasting possession for Abraham's offspring. This background provides for us a paradigm, I think, by which to view Nehemiah 11 and 12. So keep that in your mind. God had promised offspring God had promised land, and God had promised that this covenant will be an everlasting covenant that is therefore still in play in the mid-400s B.C. in Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 as he is resettling Jerusalem and the surrounding villages. Before we get too much further this morning, I want to remind you that God works in your life and God works in my life 
within the paradigm of a covenant relationship that entails blessings and fulfillments beyond our wildest imagination. Now, I'm not talking about the blessings and fulfillments of the health and wealth gospel. I'm talking about the blessings of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. For Old Testament saints, the paradigm in which God worked was this Abrahamic covenant, and then subsequently the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant right on down the road. However, for us, God works within the paradigm of the new covenant that has been sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blessings and fulfillments within that paradigm include the supernatural ability to make dead hearts alive, praise the Lord. It entails the blessing of the Holy Spirit by which believers can conquer sin in our lives. It includes the truth that God will never leave us or forsake us and the truth that all our sins have been paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ and we are found in him in all his perfection. Those are the blessings of the new covenant economy of God that far outweigh any riches that we can have in this life. And that's the paradigm that we live in. The covenant paradigm that God gave Abraham pointed to a day when it would extend further and deeper than what Abraham could imagine. The blessings of the new covenant that are also farther and deeper than we can imagine are worth submitting to. It's worth living within that covenant paradigm, folks. God is in control. He has this thing called life planned out. He has it under control, and we can rest assured that God will fulfill his end of that covenant. He did it for Abraham, and he will do it for us. So now that we have that background in mind a little bit, let's turn to Nehemiah 11 and 12. And in this first section, we see that God fulfills his promise of offspring. Let's read verses 11, 1 through 4 together. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived in his property in their own towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. And then we proceed to get the lists of names from there on out. These first couple of verses set the stage for repopulating the city. The inhabitants of Judea didn't want to live in Jerusalem because now that the wall had been rebuilt, it was set up as the capital city, so to speak. And so in the case of warfare, if there was a siege, it would probably be the first city to be taken or captured because it portrayed itself as the capital city. So nobody wanted to live there. They were kind of putting a target on their back to live there, so they cast lots to see who would fill the city. These first verses show us, I think, the need to get people into the city by casting lots, and it's then the the impetus for this detailed list that we get here. If you'll scan down the passage with me here, kind of take your fingers and zoom in a little bit on the map, we get the detailed breakdown of of who these people are. In verses 4 through 6, we get the men from Judah. In verses 7 through 9, we get men from Benjamin. 10 through 14, we get the priests, and then the Levites come in 15 through 18. And then finally, in verse 19, we have the gatekeepers. So those are the details, but I think if we can step back from those details and look at this 30,000-foot view, we're going to see a few things. First of all, these people have genealogy. 
They're legitimate Israelites. They're biological Israelites from the tribes of Israel and Judah. They are the people of God, inhabiting the city of God. They're descendants of Abraham. The promises we just looked at, these are the descendants of Abraham. Look at how many times in these verses you see son of, son of, son of, son of. That's offspring, that's genealogy, that's lineage. These texts links these descendants to the biological lineage of God's people as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, I think. Secondly, we see that in many places they are valiant men. Look at verse 6. At the very end we get 468 valiant men. Look at verse 8. His brothers, men of valor, 928. That's a lot. Look at verse 14. And their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of the great ones. The idea here of valiant men or men of valor is often referenced as a relationship to military achievement. However, the phrase can also refer to covenant faithfulness and honor. Uh, You see that as a reference to Boaz in Ruth chapter 2. Someone who is covenantally faithful. So not only is God filling the city by lots with true Israelites genealogically linked to Abraham... But he is empowering them to remain faithful and valiant in the midst of ruin and potential unsurety in Jerusalem. Notice thirdly that the designations of these people who are inheriting the city is not full. We have the sons of Judah, we have the sons of Benjamin, and we have those of the tribe of Levi. Many of you will notice that not all 12 tribes of Israel are listed here. This is a partial fulfillment. This is only a few of the tribes. This is the tribes of the southern kingdom and then the tribes of Levi. In essence, we have here those of the southern kingdom, and it may seem like God is not fulfilling his promise in full to restore the fortunes of his people, but we shouldn't forget that God's timing is not like ours. Hosea Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says this, Yet the number of the children of Israel, that's united, shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. Doesn't that sound like the Abrahamic covenant? And the children of Judah, separate, and the children of Israel, separate, shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. Through Hosea, God tells his people that there will be a reuniting of the people of Israel. There will be a reuniting of Israel with Judah to make the full tribes of Israel, the full people of God. But apparently, Nehemiah 11 is not yet that time. Even so, God is faithful to his promises at the right time in the right way in redemptive history. We can't stand here in Nehemiah 11 and and question whether God made a mistake of how he's fulfilling his covenant. In the same way, we can't look at our own lives and say that God is not working. Perhaps he's working behind the scenes, but we cannot look at our own lives and question how God is fulfilling his promises to us to make us like Jesus, to bring us to a homeland. God is fulfilling his promises to his people in the right way, at the right time, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his honor, and not necessarily our comfort. So one of the first conclusions that we see here from the details in verses 1 through 24 is that God fulfills his promise to Abraham of offspring. We see the lineage, we see the link here 
in the mid-400s B.C. It's not completely fulfilled, but God is still keeping his promises to have the people of God in the city of God. As we move on to verses 25 through 36, we move from the inhabitants to city names. We start to now get village names and place names. And here I believe that we see a small picture of the fulfillment of the land promise. Like the offspring fulfillment, the land fulfillment here is is abbreviated. It's not a total fulfillment of all of the land promised to Abraham, but the text does extend beyond Jerusalem. It starts to extend to show that people were settling back in the villages and the towns of the southern part of the promised land to Abraham. The northernmost city that we have listed here is Ono. I didn't make a mistake. That's the name of the city, (laughs) Ono, Uh, in verse 35. And if you look at Beersheba, mentioned in verse 30, that's the southernmost city listed. And it was one of the major outposts in the southern part of the land between Israel proper and then Egypt. And Beersheba was one of the cities that we read about in places like 2 Samuel 24 to describe all of the land. But instead of from Ono to Beersheba, it went from Dan to Beersheba. When it was described all of Israel as the united monarchy, it was from Dan to Beersheba. The point that I hope that you can see here is that God is continuing to work for his people within a covenant relationship where he intends to fulfill his end of the contract. As I mentioned before in Nehemiah 11, we do get an abbreviated list of the land that Israel occupied. It doesn't reach from Dan to Beersheba as before, but it does reach from Ono to Beersheba. It is a legitimate fulfillment. It is a legitimate reclaiming of the land surrounding Jerusalem, even though it was incomplete. From Nehemiah's perspective, he sees the people of God settling in cities and villages outside of Jerusalem, and he specifically intended to tell us the detailed villages of Israel's resettlement of the land after the exile. And yet when we jumped to the 30,000-foot view, in light of the whole of the Bible, we see God continuing to fulfill his promises to Abraham, even after the horrific event of the exile. Think about this for a second, especially as it relates to the land promise. Israel has experienced the epitome of divine judgment by being sent into exile in Babylon. They were physically removed from this land that God had promised to Abraham. In their mind, God has all but abandoned his promises to Abraham by forcefully sending them out of the land and into the hands of the Babylonians. And yet, In his good mercy, in his steadfast love, in God's covenant faithfulness, he raised up a pagan Persian king who told them they could go back to their land. They returned under Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple, their more return under Ezra and Nehemiah, and now after the walls of the city have been rebuilt and the city has been secured, Israel begins to settle the villages outside of Jerusalem once again and take the land that was promised to Abraham. Even after a severe discipline like the exile. It was difficult, it was challenging. We've seen throughout this book that they had challenges and troubles. And I want to encourage you guys this morning, I want to pause for just a second, encourage you that may be facing exceeding difficulty right now. I want you to know and to remember that God is still working within a covenant paradigm and within a covenant relationship with his people. Nothing has changed. God is still in a covenant relationship with his people. Whether you're experiencing difficulty due to God's discipline or if God is just simply chipping off the rough edges to make you like Jesus, he is working to make you like Jesus and that is a good thing. 
He will not waste your suffering. God is working. So far, we've seen God's covenant faithfulness through fulfilling his promises to Abraham of offspring and land. We've seen those in chapter 11, but how does that covenant faithfulness of God affect us? As we move into chapter 12, I think we get a 30,000-foot view of how God's covenant faithfulness fuels, number one, the worship of his people, and how God's covenant faithfulness fuels the covenant faithfulness of his people, too. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, we get a link to previous generations as Nehemiah lists specifically the priests and the Levites. Notice here he's listing those that are, that are specifically dedicated to temple worship. So we get this covenant faithfulness of God fueling the worship of his people. This list is those that would perform worship, would bring the stuff for worship, and then would execute worship in the temple. Notice the link to the previous generations here, and I'll list these out quickly for you. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, we get the priests who came to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel in the days of Jeshua. Jeshua was the high priest, the first one who returned to the land after the exile, and he served until the close of the 6th century B.C. So we've now left Nehemiah's day and jumped back in history a little bit. Verses 8 and 9, we have a list of the Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, again prior to Nehemiah. In 10 and 11, we have the high priests who served. This list is interesting because it goes from the time of Zerubbabel to the time of Nehemiah and even beyond. So we now get a multitude of generations here in which God is providing worship leadership for his people. Verses 12 through 21, we get the the list of priests who returned under Joachim. Joachim would have been the current high priest in Nehemiah's day. In 22 and 23, we have a list of the high priests in Nehemiah's day. And again, this list goes into the future with who would serve. And then in verses 24 through 26, we get Levites in Nehemiah's day. So you can see how this list of people has made a link to previous generations. Again, seeing this offspring fulfillment in some sense, especially related to worshipers. Notice their explicit purpose. Look at verse 24 with me. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Kadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, listen to this, to praise and to give thanks. According to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. The explicit purpose of these people now that the walls have been rebuilt and the city is being inhabited and the villages are being inhabited and Abraham has offspring in the land the explicit purpose of the worshipers is to give praise and to give thanks these lists suggest that God has provided worship leadership in Israel throughout the entire post-exilic period from Zerubbabel to Nehemiah God provided worship leadership among his people because worship matters to God. In verses 27 through 43, as we keep moving, we get the dedication of the wall. We get joyful worship. I honestly want to read this whole section, but it would bore you and me both, so I'll just give you the high points. Notice in verse 27, they brought together all of the Levites from their surrounding towns. Read this with me. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness maybe one of the best prepositional phrases in this whole passage with gladness joyful worship glad worship because they're in the land of God with the people of God 
with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netaphathites. You're welcome. They brought out all the stops in order to make this worship celebration extravagant. In light of God's covenantal faithfulness, Israel's heart was enlivened to worship God with exuberance. And they brought out all the stops. They brought out all the instruments. Verses 31 through 37, Nehemiah appointed two great great choirs to travel around the city wall. I'm still trying to get Craig to figure out how to do this for us and we'll all just march around as two big great choirs around the walls and maybe we'll get on, I don't know how that's going to work out, but he's the one that gets paid to figure it out. So we have two great choirs here who are marching around. Look at verse 31, then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall. This same wall that Tobiah taunted would fall if a fox got on it now has two great choirs on top of it giving thanks to God That is just fun. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. Bless their hearts. Reminds me of the group that went to uh, the farm from Oneida. That's a new smell. At least what Larry told us. (laughs) First choir had trumpets. Look at verse 35. In verse 36, we see that they had the musical instruments of David, the man of God. It would be like us breaking out the old pipe organ. Bring back those old instruments. We're going to praise God. We're going to give it all we have. Because God is faithful to his people. The second choir gave thanks. They went north in verse 38, look at that with me. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. In verse 40, we read that these two choirs met in the house of God. Read this with me. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. Ezra had led the other choir around the wall and they gave thanks, dedicating the wall and praising exuberantly and they meet in the house of God with this antiphonal choir back and forth, back and forth of praise and thanks to God. In light of all of that extravagant worship, verse 43 really puts the top on it. Look at verse 43 with me. I want you to notice in verse 43, circle it, underline it, Whatever you need to do to remember it. Notice how many times some variation of the word joy is used here. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Five times in one verse. Five times in one verse with some variation of the word joy as it relates to their worship. God's covenant faithfulness fueled the exuberant and joyful worship of his people. As we finish out chapter 12 in verses 44 through 47, we see that God's covenant faithfulness fuels the covenant faithfulness of his people as well. In these verses, 44 and 45, we see that Israel brought provisions for the temple service and for the Levites. Read this with me. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, 
and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns of Judah. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. Notice that they brought the portions that were required by the law and according to the commandment of David and his son Solomon. If you'll remember back to chapter 10, these are exactly the same provisions that they committed to bring. And so you see Israel's covenant faithfulness. They are being faithful to their end of the covenant because God has fueled that faithfulness with his own. God provided offspring. God provided land. God provided worshipers. And all of that fueled the covenant faithfulness of his people. They saw that God was working. They recognized it. They loved it. And they could do nothing but serve him back. After all of that background and then the 30,000 foot view of Nehemiah 11 and 12, I think we have to step back and ask a little bit of how this affects us today in 2017, living in what I may call uh, an adjusted covenantal arrangement. So let's bring it all together now and look at these same 30,000 foot themes in God's new covenant economy that we live in. First thing I want you to see is building the people of God. We've entitled this whole sermon series, Nehemiah, Building the People of God. And what I want you to see here in this passage is that God uses normal people with normal skills to do extraordinary things in his kingdom. If you remember back to chapter 11, the first couple of verses, nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem. They were having to cast lots to see who was going in. These people were not living in Jerusalem because they had engineering degrees. They weren't living in Jerusalem because of their economic prowess. They were living in Jerusalem because somebody threw a couple of stones and they landed and said, you're going. These are normal people, normal skills, normal life, and God is doing extraordinary things with his people. Don't ever underestimate what God can and will do with you. In the new covenant relationship that we have with God, he has appointed some as teachers and he has appointed some as nursery workers, and neither one is more important than the other. God has appointed some as elders and pastors to share the gospel from the pulpit, and he has appointed others to share the gospel in the Fortune 500 and in public school classrooms. We all have a role in the church regardless of how normal we think we are. And in this new covenant economy, God has promised to provide the gifts needed to build his church. He is building his people, and he intends to do extraordinary things through what we may call ordinary people. The second thing I want you to see this morning is building the place of God. We've seen people, we now see places. We're going to see priests. Building the place of God. We've seen throughout Nehemiah and especially in our passage today that God had a specified place for his people. In God's new covenant economy, that place he intends for us is, is future. We all have heard and read and know of the heavenly Jerusalem, the um, new heavens and the new earth that we read about at the end of Revelation. But Peter also tells us about this inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it tells us that God has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's something future, but it's something sure and certain. 
In Nehemiah and in the Old Testament as a whole, the promised land was an inheritance for Israel. It was something to be inherited. It was an actual land with boundaries and cities and villages. God faithfully gave Israel this land according to his promises to Abraham. However, remember the book of Hebrews tells us that even the Old Testament saints looked beyond this land inheritance. Hebrews 11.10, speaking of Abraham, says that he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's not this Jerusalem. It's a new one, and Abraham looked forward to it. Hebrews 11 continues in verses 13 to 16 to tell us that these Old Testament saints died in faith, seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one, and that God had prepared even for them a city. As we consider God's new covenant economy, we find ourselves surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. We find ourselves as those who are still in a covenant relationship with a loving God who has prepared a holy city for his people. Others have gone before us and others have run this race well. And they ran the race faithfully because they longed for the city whose builder is God. God will keep his end of the covenant. We should be motivated to persevere to the heavenly kingdom that God has prepared for us. Thirdly, we have a royal priesthood with a faithful high priest. In Nehemiah 11 and 12, particularly chapter 12, we saw an emphasis on the priesthood, particularly the Levites, but other priests who served as well. As we think about building the people of God in the New Covenant, the idea of priesthood shifts a little bit. In the New Covenant economy, we approach God as a royal priesthood ourselves, but under the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.11 tells us that Christ appeared as a high priest and entered once and for all into the holy places by his own blood, not by the blood of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus Christ has appeared as the high priest to put away the regular yearly sacrifices that would never take away sin. Jesus died once for all to secure an eternal redemption for those who believe in his name. We have a faithful high priest in the new covenant whose name is Jesus. And the eternal redemption that he secured for us is sure and steadfast. That's God's end of the covenant faithfulness. What does that have to do with us? It means for us that through Jesus we have access to God as a royal priesthood ourselves. 1 Peter 2.9 calls us believers a royal priesthood. This means that through Jesus, the faithful high priest, we can draw near to God and worship him freely as a royal priesthood ourselves. We no longer need an earthly priest to intercede for us. We can approach God freely ourselves and worship him anytime with joy and exuberance. We no longer need a priest to offer sacrifices for sin, but we can confess our sins to God directly. And 1 Peter also tells us that we can abstain from the passions of the flesh. Jesus died and made us a royal priesthood so that we would quit toying with whatever sin is more enticing to us than the glory of God in the face of Christ. Put it to death, brothers and sisters. God's covenant faithfulness fuels our covenant faithfulness because we are now a royal priesthood with a faithful high priest. 
Finally, and this is the best one, eternal joy awaits. This is the best one. In the new covenant economy that God has put in place, eternal joy awaits. I've titled this sermon, People, Places, and Priests, Covenant Faithfulness and Eternal Joy. And I think that this point, eternal joy, brings the whole picture together in my mind. It makes the whole thing kind of worth pursuing at this point. God's covenant faithfulness to bring his people to their future inheritance as a royal priesthood will result in everlasting and ever-increasing joy. Did you hear that? God's covenant faithfulness to his people will result in everlasting and ever-increasing joy in God's kingdom. Look at 1 Peter 1.8 with me on the screen. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like chapter 12, verse 43 in the book of Nehemiah? The joy of worship by the people of God in the city of God in Nehemiah's day is a picture of the joy of worship in the new covenant community. That joy, though, is not only present, it is also future, and this joy is eternal joy that is infinitely full and will infinitely increase in God's kingdom. Infinitely full and will infinitely increase the joy in God's kingdom. You can figure out how that works when you get there. But I can guarantee you it's going to be better than what we face in this life. Church, may we be counted among those who press on to this inheritance, who press on to this joy, who press on to this worship. May we be counted as those who press on to eternal joy in Christ Jesus. As we wrap up this morning, Craig is going to come and we're going to sing together. And if you're here this morning and you have, you have no idea about this covenantal paradigm that God has established in Christ Jesus, that's okay. But we want to invite you to come forward at this time. We're going to have staff members here who can direct you to someone who can share with you about this covenantal relationship that God has designed in Christ Jesus through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Some of you may be ready to post your stake here at 9th and O or to learn more about church membership. We would invite you to come at this time as well. Let's all stand together as I pray for us. As Craig comes. Father, we give you great praise today in our hearts, with our lips, with everything that we have. Father, we give you great praise that you have made us alive together with Christ. That you have fulfilled your promise to make a people a people for your own possession, a holy nation that we might proclaim your excellencies. God, we're thankful that you have changed our our dead stone hearts into hearts of flesh that we might respond to the gospel in faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, you didn't have to do it that way. You didn't have to fulfill your promises in that way. You didn't have to bring us into your kingdom, and yet you did. And so we give you great praise because of your covenant faithfulness. Father, I pray that today your covenant faithfulness would fuel our worship, 
and would fuel our faithfulness. God, help us to persevere to the heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.